Loved ones, I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 17, and starting in verse 12 this morning. After a couple weeks of break, we return back to our study here through the book of Isaiah. And before I read the text for us this morning, I'd like us to consider where we are in our journey through this book of Isaiah to remind us uh, where we've come to at this point. We've seen uh, from the earlier chapters how Isaiah was warning the people of Israel that dark times were upon them soon because of their godless ways, their idolatry, their lack of zeal for God's glory, their disdain for the poor and the needy among them. Because of all that, Isaiah was telling his generation that God is going to punish you, and he was going to send, in a sense, a purifying fire upon his people of old, his church. And that would burn off the the dross, so to speak, and leave behind a pure remnant of God, a remaining people committed to him. And this would happen through the coming invasion of the Assyrians, that Assyrian empire from the north, that powerhouse of that day. They would come and overtake Israel and then threaten Judah in the south. And then later Isaiah will prophesy about the threat of the Babylonians who would come and overtake Judah later. And so in the midst of this great darkness that Isaiah was kind of painting for them, saying that this is coming, He also told them of the great light that God would send, a greater light, the anointed king, the Messiah of God, the child born to the people, the son of David, who would be born of a virgin girl, the sign of God's hope and salvation. He would come and establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And in that way, Isaiah was saying, God is not going to give up on his people. Why? Because he had made promises to his people. He had promised to save them and to give them his grace. And the Lord God is faithful to his commitments. Unlike us, we are so often unfaithful to what we commit to, but God is always faithful. And so Isaiah has been showing us time and time again that there is reason for hope, even in the midst of dark times. And that kind of brings us to the end of chapter 12. And today we find ourselves here in a large portion of Isaiah that began in chapter 13 and will end in chapter 27. And in this important large section of the book, God is addressing the surrounding nations of Israel and Judah in that day. He's addressing the superpowers of Assyria, of Egypt, Babylon, and other surrounding neighbors and nations around Israel. These were the neighbors of the people of Israel, God's church, the people they lived among. And in this section, God has been displaying and proving that he is the sovereign Lord. He is in control of all happenings in the world and that he judges the nations for their wickedness. He not only judges his people, but he also judges the nations. And we find, however, that as he comes in judgment, surprisingly, God is also extending an offer of his grace to the nations, the Gentiles, right? Not only to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. Isaiah's prophesying that he would include the multitude of the nations into his people, a multi-ethnic, 
worldwide kingdom of God is what Isaiah has been prophesying about. And to that reality, we find here today that God is addressing the superpower of Egypt. And he promises judgment, but he also promises salvation. As the text will say, he will strike them, but he will also heal them. And so let's read Isaiah 17, 12, all the way to 1925. This is all about Egypt. Give your attention to the reading of God's word, loved ones. Oh, the raging of many nations, they rage like the raging sea. Oh, the uproar of the peoples, they roar like the roaring of great waters. Although the peoples roar like the roar of surging waters, when he, that is God, rebukes them, they will flee far away, driven before the wind like chaff on the hills, like tumbleweed before a gale. In the evening, sudden terror, before the morning they are gone. This is the portion of those who loot us, the lot of those who plunder us. Woe to the land of wearing, wiring wings along the rivers of Cush, which sends envoys by sea in papyrus boats over the water. Go, swift messengers, to a people tall and smooth-skinned, to a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech, whose land is divided by rivers. All you people of the world, you who live on earth, when a banner is raised on the mountain, you will see it, and when a trumpet sounds, you will hear it. This is what the Lord says to me. I will remain quiet and will look on from my dwelling place like shimmering heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. For behold, before the harvest, when the blossom is gone and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he will cut off the shoots with pruning knives and cut down and take away the spreading branches. They will all be left to the mountains, birds of prey, and to the wild animals, the birds will feed on them all summer, the wild animals all winter. At that time, gifts will be brought to the Lord Almighty, from a people tall and smooth-skinned, from a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech, whose land is divided by rivers. The gifts will be brought to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord Almighty. An oracle concerning Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart and will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The waters of the river, river will dry up and the riverbed will be parched and dry. The canal, canals will stink and the streams of Egypt will dwindle and dry up. The reeds and rushes will wither. Also the plants along the Nile at the mouth of the river, every sown field along the Nile will become parched, will blow away and be no more. The fishermen will groan and lament. All who cast hooks into the Nile, those who throw nets in the water will pine away. Those who work with combed flax will despair. The weavers of fine linen will lose hope. The workers in cloth will be dejected and all the wage earners will be sick at heart. The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? 
Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her people have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger and all that she does as a drunkard staggers around in its vomit. There is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm, branch, or reed. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand of the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of destruction. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender and will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third among, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning. Well, loved ones, as we come to this text, in this passage, we will find and discover that God, the Lord Almighty, he outplays the powerful He outwits the wise, and he overflows in mercy to his enemies. And those will be our three main points this morning, outplays, outwits, and overflows. And along the way, we'll find these truths, these principles of how God works with the nations. We find they apply in the gospel, most especially the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we find a lot of connections in the Apostle Paul's writings in the New Testament, and we'll draw those connections as we go along the way. But first, we find that God outplays the powerful. The language here in the opening of chapter 17, verses 12 to 14, about the nations here roaring like the ocean, the mighty ocean, should remind us of Psalms like Psalm 2 and Psalm 93, where we find that same metaphor of the raging seas. What these texts are saying is that the nations, the world around us, they rage in war for what? For more power. And to us, it seems like the roaring waves of the mighty oceans, it strikes terror in us as the inhabitants of the world. And it's easy for us to fall into a kind of fear of man and to be Uh, in that sense, watchful and waiting in a sense of anxiety and fear as we look at the news of warfare around us. And I think that's true for us today. It's easy for us to get caught up in the news of war and feel that same fear. 
But Isaiah reminds us of something important, that the Lord is far more powerful, and that these powerful nations around us are, in fact, before the Lord like chaff, light and airy, thrown into the air like dust that's easily chased off by the winds. God is not impressed by the powerful of this world. And this is so encouraging to us here at the start, because as the world loots us and plunders us or threatens to do so, what we take courage in this of what God says, that the lot of those or the end result of those who steal and plunder our goods and the rights of others in this world is, in fact, terror and destruction. That is ultimately what they will reap in the end. That is what they will get if they continue to loot and plunder. And here's an important truth assumed by Isaiah as well, as he's calling out the powerful people of the world and the nations, the implied assumption here, or truth, is that all human authority in the world is ultimately accountable before God or to God. He holds every person of authority to account for their actions, what they have done with the power that has been given to them. And in chapter 18, we hear God call out the Egyptians for their proud use of power in the world. We find in the early uh, illustration there that they were busy, they were loud and arrogant with their power. And Isaiah compares them to a massive swarm of flying insects, which were very popular and renowned uh, in the ancient world there in Egypt around the Nile, lots of flying insects, and he calls them out. Uh, for that. He calls them out as well for their proud appearance of power, calling them a people tall and smooth-skinned, a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation that struck fear into others around them. And I really think that this illustration of ancient Egypt is so applicable to us, to people in the Western world today, is it not? We are very loud, boisterous, busy doing all kinds of work and loud about that on social media and whatnot, we are proud and also obsessed with the appearance of glory. But notice God's strategy in response to this proud appearance of glory. In verses 4 to 7, look at how God responds. The Lord quietly subverts the arrogant powers of the world. And one commentator says it this way, he remains the transcendent God, watching from his dwelling place. But as heat and dew are not incidental to harvest, but contributory factors, so the Lord moves the whole process of history towards its maturing. So in this, we find how God works. This is how he always has worked, that he is quietly and subversively working his plans into effect even though it doesn't appear that way to us at first glance, from outward appearances, the Lord is at work in all things. And this should remind us of how God's power was at work, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we might think of Jesus as he stood on trial before Pontius Pilate, a governor who had authority and power. And think of Pilate. He felt so secure of himself, did he not? He said to Jesus, you, he says, you do not realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you. And how did Jesus respond to his remark? He said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. 
The power that you have, Pilate, has been given to you from my father, is what he's saying. And Pilate was just baffled and confounded by this. The fact that a man who was innocent by, his, by all appearances refused to defend his own innocence. He didn't understand why Jesus would not employ or use Pilate's power that was there at his disposal to prevent his own death. Why? He couldn't make sense of how Jesus was innocent but also insistent to remain silent and quiet there when he was on trial. The strategy made no sense to Pilate. He couldn't understand it. But because this is not the way the power and strategies of the world work, what is a central tactic that we find in the world, the way of the world with respect to power? What approach do we all kind of fall, our, fall into ourselves at different times? Well, we obtain as much power as we can through education, wealth, status, influence, and then we use that power to maximize our own well-being, regardless of the well-being of others, or at the dispense of the well-being of others. That is the way of the world. Grab more power. It doesn't matter what, if others suffer in the process. You grab as much power as you can. Is this not what Adam and Eve did in the beginning? They reached for new power, and they used it even though it brought us all into this mess of sin and misery that we find ourselves in. This is what humans have done ever since. This is what the world did to Jesus. This is what people continue to do to one another today, reaching for more personal power without caring about the well-being of others. Because we tend to think that we do not belong to anyone but ourselves, therefore, at the end of the day, I'm only obliged to serve myself and not others. This is the tactic of the world, the way of the world. It is merciless. It is impersonal. It is selfish. But God's way is totally different. And the gospel of Jesus shows us that God's ways are not our ways. That his way is completely the opposite. The gospel is the news that the Son of God gave up as much power as he could. How so? God became a human being born into a poor family, and died the death of a wicked criminal. Why? To maximize his own well-being? No. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one, infinitely lived in that happy, holy society of love for all of eternity past. God did not need to maximize his own well-being. His well-being has always been maximized to the infinite level of perfection. It wasn't for himself in that sense. The gospel was not done with regard to himself, but with regard to us. He gave up so much all the way to death on the cross where he laid down his life for us, for our well-being. You see, the world aims at the appearance of glory and neglects loving others. But God aims at loving others and therefore is indeed glorious. And this is how God outplayed sin, death, and the devil. For thousands of years, humanity has played the game of life, so to speak. And we've all seen the plays in the playbook, right? We know how to lie, how to cheat, how to steal, ignore, slander, gossip, and hate others in order to get more power. But when God showed up, he used a new play, true sacrificial love for the other. And that's how God one, subversively, quietly, by the power of his love. 
And this is why Jesus quietly laid down his life on the cross. This is how God outplayed the devil in death. He was the taking the punishment that we deserve, quietly standing condemned in our place as our substitute, our legal representative and replacement there, dying in our place. And the devil thought he was so wise, like the Egyptians and like many of today, and he provoked all those who were involved to falsely condemn Jesus and lead him to the cross, and then death swallowed him up whole, thinking that they had won. But little did the devil know that when death chewed on Jesus, so to speak, death was unintentionally biting into a kind of spiritual cyanide. Now, cyanide, if you're into James Bond movies or spy movies, it's a highly toxic chemical that if inhaled or ingested will kill you in minutes. Back in World War II, spies even had uh, glasses that that in in the glasses they had a secret little pill that they called the L pill, which was L for lethal, that if they were captured by the enemies, they would take that pill and chew it to die lest they be tortured. And so when Jesus gave himself over to the jaws of death, he was death's L pill. When death swallowed up the Son of God, it was eating its L pill. It was eating its own death. How so? How does that make sense? Well, death only has a claim on those who are guilty of breaking the law of God. Since Jesus was innocent, it had no claim on Jesus. Yet, Jesus died carrying the guilt of God's people. Therefore, that guilt that hung over us, that we carried, no longer stands against us. He has canceled that record of debt and guilt against us. So, now if the devil tries to accuse those who believe in Jesus that they are guilty and deserving of death, well, Jesus stands to object. Objection, Your Honor. That accusation has been raised and answered. Yes, they have sinned and accrued much guilt, but I appeal to my innocent blood that was shed for them. The full debt of guilt has been paid for by me, the Redeemer. There is no more guilt. I took it for them. Therefore, that accusation was already answered there on the cross of Calvary. But the devil might raise another objection, but they deserve to be condemned by the law of God. And Jesus, our advocate, whoever lives to intercede for us, replies, again, objection, Your Honor, I call as an expert witness, the Holy Spirit, who has gone on record saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. The condemnation has already been answered by Christ dying condemned in our place. So with the blood of Jesus shed for sinners, the accuser, Satan, has no no rebuttal. There is no legitimate claim against us now, we who are in Christ. So in this As we get back to Isaiah, we find paradoxically or subversively and quietly God outplays the powers of the world. God outplayed sin, death, and the devil by dying on the cross in our place. And so we find that in the power of God's sacrificial love, he diverted the curse of sin and death to himself because only God could outplay such enemies. Judas Iscariot, the Jewish leaders, the governor Pontius Pilate, the Roman soldiers, behind-the-scenes manipulator Satan himself were playing the tactics of the world, like Egypt long before them, gain power, retain power, and squash all competing power. That is the way of the world. But God was outplaying them. 
How? Well, God was in control of the situation, and in the end, we find that God's power was displayed through his love on the cross, outplaying the power of the world. And in the end of human history, we find in Revelation 21 uh, that the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the light of God's kingdom. And in fulfillment of what Isaiah says here, the end of chapter uh, 18, Revelation says the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And so the Lord's strategy of sacrificial love will win in the end. His power is sovereign over all the raging powers of the world. His kingdom will triumph in the end, not theirs. And as God's people, in response to this, we ought to receive this and also be less like the world and more like God. Instead of aiming at the appearance of glory in life, aiming at status, influence, respect, and grabbing for that more power. Let us aim at loving others. Let us follow in God's way of sacrificial love, not playing the game of life to grab more glory for yourself. Remember, rather, how the Son of God gave up his glory to grab you in love. And then let us, then, in response, love him truly and love one another. And true glory will come to all those who believe in Jesus and his love. So we've seen how God has outplayed the powerful in this world with his strategy of quiet, sacrificial love. And now we'll consider how God outwits the wise of the world. And we find that in chapter 19, verses 1 to 15, where he outwits the wise counselors of Egypt. On a first layer of fulfillment, of course, this passage He's speaking about how God would overcome the ancient superpower of Egypt. He would do that by causing them to fight amongst themselves, fighting Egypt against Egypt and sending foreign opposition to overtake Egypt. And the records of history prove that that exactly happened. God was telling the Egyptians that they were not as safe and secure as they had assumed, as they thought. They praised themselves for their wisdom their knowledge, their advanced learning and technology, and they were proud. They thought that they were untouchable and invincible, again, very much like us in the Western world today, and much like the Greeks in Paul's day, the Apostle Paul. And through his prophet here, God says that he will confound and confuse them. He taunts them in verse 12 of chapter 18, where he says, Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against you. That taunt from the prophet should remind us of something else. It should sound familiar. This whole passage, in fact, is very similar to the opening of 1 Corinthians, where we find there, Paul says this, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men." So these same points, the same principle of truth that we find in Isaiah 700 years before the Apostle Paul 
are, are apparent and, and reappear there in 1 Corinthians. Even Paul himself in that chapter quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. And so we find that the gospel was not created by the Apostle Paul. The gospel is God's gospel. He is the brilliant author, the true hero, and the absolute finisher of this gospel truth. And we find it in the Old Testament as well as in the New and here in Isaiah and also in 1 Corinthians, we find that God confounds the world's conventional wisdom by the gospel. The conventional wisdom of ancient Egypt is the same that we find today in the world. What is that? That by human determination, willpower, ingenuity, alone, we can solve each and every problem of the world without God. That is the world's conventional wisdom. In other words, we don't need God to fix ourselves. And that is wisdom that is from below, as the author of James says, is contrary to the wisdom which comes from above, which is found in the gospel. In Isaiah's day, the people of Judah were tempted to make an alliance with Egypt, which was a superpower, to protect themselves from the Assyrian threat in the north. But Isaiah here is showing them the foolishness of trying to become an ally with the world. Instead, he says the people of God are to hold fast to his promises and his work of salvation among them. So what about us? But well, we too must not fall into the trap of self-salvation, trying to save ourselves by our own determination, by our own ingenuity apart from God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we must trust in God's wisdom, which is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, him crucified for our sins. And today, God continues to outwit the world through the preaching of Christ crucified, which is a totally different solution to solving our problems in the world. The message of the gospel, we find we cannot save ourselves. We are in a pickle that we cannot get out of. God tells us to stop trying to save ourselves and instead trust in his power to save us. And there is power in the blood of Christ to redeem us, and to renew us and to restore all of God's good creation. And so we must walk by faith in God's promises of grace towards us. Loved ones, we cannot earn our way into glory by hard work. We cannot earn our way into glory by hard work. We must receive our way into glory by humble faith in what God has done for us in Christ. And this applies as much in the beginning of our salvation as it does to the very end of salvation. And so as we go forward, we must continue to trust in God and his promises by faith in his renewing power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. For Jesus on the cross is that signal, that banner lifted high for the world to see of God's wisdom that will indeed overcome all the proud self-reliance of humanity in the end. And what is that end result, the surprising result of God's outplaying and outwitting the world? Well, it's not only judgment, but it is also overflowing in mercy and blessing. And that's our last brief point, overflows. God overflows with blessing. We find this in verses 16 to 25, a surprising turn of events here in this oracle against Egypt. God has promised to strike Egypt down for their pride and their arrogance. But here we find God promising as well to heal them and to bring them into his own family. God's judgment is not the last word. There's always hope for sinners who turn in faith to God. We find here a series of five in that day statements here. And Isaiah is talking about the work of God's 
grace upon Egypt and all the nations. It was, in Isaiah's day, years ahead of him. He was looking into the future. But it is what we are experiencing now in the age of the church. The inclusion of the nations, the Gentile peoples, into God's covenant people, his church. And this speaks of the fulfillment of the promise that God had made long before to Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he said. And so God promised that that blessing, that the Messiah born from Israel's seed would rise up and bless all the nations, including them and his people. And that's what Isaiah sees here. And what he describes is nothing less than a revival among Egypt, among the nations. And Alec Moiter in his commentary helpfully identifies five marks here in this, in these verses 19 to 22, five marks of a true revival or true religion. First, in verse 19 to 20, we find an altar, an altar of reconciliation, which is built as a sign and a witness of God's presence. What do we learn from that? Well, revivals prioritize the church, the church where God is promised to be present among his people. Secondly, there is prayer. In verse 20, the people turn to God in prayer. They cry out to the Lord for help. And so revivals prioritize prayer. Thirdly, there is revelation. Look at verse 21. We see that the Lord makes himself known, makes himself known. True revivals find God as he has revealed himself in his word through a study of the word. So revivals prioritize the revelation of God himself through a reading of his word. And fourthly, there is worship. Look at verse 21. We find that they respond to the revelation of God with sacrifices and offerings and vows of commitment to the Lord. And so revivals prioritize commitment to worship God in all of life. And fifthly, there is repentance. Look at verse 22. We find that in response to God's discipline, they turn to the Lord. And the verb there in Hebrew is shuv, which is the same verb that's used elsewhere for repentance. It's turning away from sin and turning to God. And so revivals prioritize repentance from sin to turn to God in faith. So what is the result of this revival? Well, it is nothing less than a multi-ethnic people unified in their worship of God. Those who used to be enemies, now that barrier between them brought down and brought together they are in worship of God. Again, we hear in 23 to 25, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. These were arch enemies, right? The Assyrians will go up to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria and the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. Amazing. This must have been amazing for the people in Isaiah's day to consider. These enemies that hated each other, worshiping the same God together. And in that day, Israel will be third among or along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. What? Remember back in the Exodus event when God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, Let my people go? Speaking of the Israelites, here now he's saying, Egypt is also my people. By his grace, God turns enemies into his people. Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. And so, as the world uses its tactics 
gaining power and squashing others, raging in anger. We see people polarizing in our world today in opposite extremes. We see people isolated and lonely. We see wars and tensions rising. That is the way of the world, loved ones. That is a byproduct of wisdom from below. But here we see the handiwork of God, God's ways and wisdom, especially seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ, produce a remarkable unity and love coming together in truth and worship of God. And so, through the preaching of Christ's sacrificial love, the Lord Almighty is in fact redeeming and uniting a people from him, for himself, from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is happening today in the world, all parts around the world. And he calls us to pull away from the world's way of grabbing power and glory-hogging to respond in love to him and to our neighbors. And may we continue to do the same. And it is my prayer that as we consider those five marks of true revival, that that would be true of us. And so let us continue to, in response to God's grace, prioritize the church where God's presence is found and promised for us. Let us prioritize prayer where we beseech God to receive more of his power for us. Let us prioritize his word where we find God's heart revealed to us and for us. Let us prioritize commitment to worship God in all of life. And let us prioritize repentance, always turning away from our sin to love God and love our neighbor all the more. Well, may God continue to do such a work among us here in this place, not only in the distant future, but even now, even now, today, tomorrow, and the weeks ahead through the power of his gospel. Amen. Father God, as we study and consider this ancient text, which was spoken first to the ancient people of Egypt against them and what you planned on doing to strike them, but also to heal them. Lord, we are astounded by your strategy of sacrificial love, quietly and subversively uh, overcoming the powers of this world through the gospel. And we are also astonished that you outwit the wise of this world through the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Lord, we do ask and pray that those realities would be true of us, that you would continue to work a true revival among us, that we would see your grace and respond with gratitude of heart. Lord, work among us even now, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.